Welcome to the drama of diagnosis, your portal to conversations about illness. The knowledge you gain here can inspire deeper levels of compassion and understanding. But it's the capriciousness of illness that suggests a little education can't hurt, in case something strikes you someday. Welcome to the Drama of Diagnosis. I'm June Scharf, and this episode explores a somewhat common yet not well-known illness called Dupuytren's Contracture. It has recently received some exposure by superstar quarterback John Elway coming forward with his experiences dealing with this condition. He said on the NBC Today show that, quote, for me not being able to pick up a football, that was an emergency. To be clear, this illness doesn't strike suddenly. It's more a progressive problem, which can be best understood as a condition that causes knots of tissue to form under the skin of the palms. Eventually, the knots create a thick cord that can pull one or more fingers into a bent position, and they can't be released. The late U.S. President Ronald Reagan is another public figure who suffered from it. I'd like to offer a little background on Mr. Elway, whose record in the National Football League is quite stunning. So it kind of makes me feel like there's this cruel irony in him suffering from an illness that impacts his hands. He's 59 years old, and he's considered one of the greatest passers in the NFL. His professional playing career spanned 16 years, and it began with him being a first draft pick in 1983, where the Baltimore Colts seized him but traded him right away to the Denver Broncos, where he spent his entire career. He led the team to the Super Bowl three times, two of which resulted in victories. Now, one of his standout historical performances as a quarterback is something known as the drive. He took the ball 98 yards through a series of plays to reach the end zone, which led to the game-tying touchdown and then an overtime win in the AFC Championship game against the Cleveland Browns in 1987. However, they lost the Super Bowl to the New York Giants. Now, full disclosure, I'm from Cleveland, and trust me, that series of plays is etched in everyone's memories. And that's why I'd like to note that there was one sack during the drive down the field. Currently, John is the general manager and president of football operations for the Broncos. He was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2004 during his first year of eligibility, and he was inducted into the College Hall of Fame in 2000 for his time playing at Stanford University. Now, on the personal side, I think it's worth mentioning that his father was a high school and college football coach. He also has a twin sister. Now, regarding his case of Dupuytren's contracture, he says he received his diagnosis about 15 years ago. He was told at that time that surgery was the only option. The problem for him was that over the course of his football career, he underwent numerous hand surgeries and he really didn't want any more. The condition got worse, though, over the years, so he returned to his doctor and learned about newer non-surgical treatments that could straighten out his fingers, which had frozen in a curled position. Now, this treatment worked, and his hands have returned to their normal state. However, this disease doesn't entirely go away, and his fingers could restrict again, requiring more treatment. Now, part of the reason why John has been public about his experiences is to let others know that options do exist to treat it. He suggests that you check out a website he endorses called factsonhand.com for further details. I share his mission in spreading the word about this illness because it can be managed to ensure a greater quality of life. 
Now, before I introduce my guest, who will share all the facts surrounding Dupuytren's contracture, I just want to mention some information related to how the disease got its name. It's credited to a French doctor named Baron Guillaume Dupuytren, which likely has a different pronunciation in French, but that's how it's commonly said. He lived during the reign of Napoleon Bonaparte, France's rebellious leader in the early 1800s, who was later defeated during the famous Battle at Waterloo. Now, Dupuytren was a general surgeon in Paris who was not the first to operate on patients' hands to treat these types of contractures, but he was quite a character, and he was the first to tout his accomplishments in something akin to a media blitz, such as the media existed back then. By making the most noise about it in the medical community, essentially he was able to claim ownership of this turf. This brings us to my very special guest, Dr. Philip Blazar, who practices at the top-rated Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He carries the title of Chief Hand and Upper Extremity Services. He also is an Associate Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Harvard Medical School. This year, he was named a top doctor by Boston Magazine and by Castle Connolly, which offers ratings on doctors nationwide. His clinical and research interests include Dupuytren's contracture, distal radius fractures and their surgical treatment, the surgical treatment of arthritis afflicting the hand and wrist, and upper extremity nerve injury, compression, and surgery. Lastly, he's the director for the Harvard Hand and Upper Extremity Surgery Fellowship. Dr. Blazer, I'd like to welcome you, and I think the best place to start is a definition of what this illness is exactly. So this disease, Dupuytren's contracture, mm-hmm. is a disease of a tissue that we call the palmar fascia. Most people um, who are not hand surgeons are not going to be familiar with that. That tissue is a normal tissue that uh, exists under the skin, beneath the skin of the palm of the hands, but uh, if your palm is facing towards the ceiling, it's between the skin and the tendons and the nerves and uh, all those important structures. It's a very specialized type of fascia, um, and that has to do with uh, some of how we use our hands Mm -hmm. evolutionarily, The skin on the palm of our hands is much less mobile than most skin in most other places, and part of that lesser mobility is related to this palmar fascia that helps the skin on the palm side of the fingers and the hands uh, be less mobile than other places in the body. That, That fascia, that palmar fascia, runs... Um, from a central area in the palm, um, kind of more at the wrist area, all the way up to the fingers in line with the way the tendons that bend our fingers run. And this disease is an abnormality of that fascia. Uh, the fascia becomes different both at a microscopic level and at a macroscopic level. So the cells in it are different. Uh, It becomes much thicker than normal. And it also becomes contractile, meaning that that tissue contracts. And that's what really 
bring most people to attention of the uh, medical profession when they actually have a contracture of that palmar fascia. So some people refer to it not as Dupuytren's disease, but Dupuytren's contracture. Okay. Now, what are the first signs people will experience, and what distinguishes those signs from other potential culprits, like maybe trigger finger, or you know, if you feel something, thinking it might be a cyst? Those are both things that uh, people get in their hands frequently. Mm-hmm. What distinguishes them, um, uh, and I'll answer that question first. Distinguishes them is a cyst starts as a lump or a mass in the hand, um, it feels distinctly different to an experienced examiner and to a patient uh, if you have a Dupuytren's contracture or nodule, which is the first thing that people usually get. So um, I, I mentioned that this palm profession normally runs in line pretty similar to the tendons from the palm of the hand all the way out the fingers. Most characteristically, in the area of one of the lines on your palm at the ring finger area, um, uh, the, the transverse line on the palm just at the ring finger area, right about there, people initially get a firm lump that shows up sometimes after an injury, uh, but frequently just by itself. And usually the first few weeks or months, that little uh, firm mass there is a little bit tender uh, when you push on it or when you grasp something firmly. That's the first sign. The, the distinguishing factors from a cyst are most of the time this is a little bit bigger than a cyst. And to an experienced examiner, you can put your hand on it and feel it, and it, and it feels usually quite different. But for many people, it is actually hard to distinguish a cyst from a Dupuytren's nodule. And at that point, their their hand isn't clenching by itself. That comes later, right? That is later. And it can be a long time later. Uh, literally, uh, you, most the most commonly when people start to get what we refer to as a contracture, mm-hmm. um, when people lose motion in their fingers, that is six, eight, ten years after the development of that nodule. What distinguishes it from a trigger finger is that a trigger finger is a a dynamic process, meaning that somebody's finger may not all the time move through a normal range of motion, but what happens is the finger episodically gets stuck in a particular position hence the name trigger. So the finger triggers. It gets stuck and snaps open or snaps closed. When somebody gets Dupuytren's contracture, what happens is over time, people's finger becomes slightly more closed and they physically can't straighten it. And in fact, uh, they can't straighten it. A physician can't straighten it. Um, You need to undergo if one is going to want to get all that straightening of the finger back. Okay. Now, what is the incidence rate for this illness? There is not very good data out there about the incidence rate. Uh, What there is data on is usually, um, and and sometimes 
in the scientific literature, they refer to it as the incidence rate, really the prevalence rate. And just to take a moment and talk about those two, um, the prevalence rate is how many people in a group or population have the disorder. The incidence rate is how many new people get it on an annual basis. And we don't really know the incidence rate anywhere. But the prevalence rate, how many people have it in population, varies quite a bit um, from place to place. This is a largely genetic disease, meaning uh, uh, for many people, it is inherited. Uh, from their parents, from their ancestors, etc. And like many genetic diseases, it is more common in certain populations. Um, in the U.S., it's estimated that uh, somewhere between 1% and 3% of adult Caucasians have some manifestations of Dupuytren's disease. But that number is higher in different places. Uh, for example, the um, largest prevalence number that I'm aware of, if I remember the study correctly, is in Icelandic men, it's something like 25% of the population in Iceland has some evidence of Dupuytren's disease. Wow, that's interesting. I've never heard the distinguishing between incidence and prevalence. I get it, but I'm really glad you pointed that out because that's good information. Now, we, we just touched on it, but over what time period can these symptoms present themselves? Uh, long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so for some of these people, this is clearly a lifelong disease, and we do occasionally see people developing the beginning signs of Dupuytren's contracture in their 20s, or even younger, although that is very, very rare. But for most people... Uh, they first start to notice manifestations of this um, when they're in their fifth, sixth, or seventh decade of life. Uh, and the probability that anyone has it or the um, uh, occurrence of it in, essentially increases with age. And so it's higher in people in their 80s than people in their 70s than people in their 60s, etc. Okay, that helps. But another aspect to the question is if, if they see initial symptoms uh, like today, the expression of it can extend for, you were just saying, like 10 years out before they really have the contracture effect of the illness? That is correct. So uh, as we talked earlier, the first manifestations, the first developments that people notice usually are what we call a nodule, that bump mm-hmm. in the palm. And um, when people have studied what happens to people who come in with just a bump in one palm, about eight to 10 years after the development of the bump in the palm, about 15% of that group will go on to have a situation where we think it's appropriate to do, for example, surgery. So over eight to 10 years, it's only 15% of the group that progresses to that uh, far along in the disease process. Um, that other 85%, depending on how old they were and a number of other uh, factors um, that predict what happened uh, or influence what happened, they may develop the contracture and be appropriate candidates for surgery or other treatment beyond that time period. 
Okay. And so when you see the, the lump, there's really nothing to be done. Is that what you're saying? There's very little to be done. Uh, there are a few things that people can consider, and there is some information about injecting the lumps mm-hmm. with uh, cortisone, corticosteroid medications. Um, there are no studies that say that that prevents fracture, but there are some studies that say if the nodule is painful, it can make it less painful. And I mentioned that it, the nodule feels really hard. Um, there are some studies suggesting that uh, it may make the nodule softer to, to, uh, to how it feels. But there aren't any studies that, that prove that 10 years later, a smaller percentage of folks needed surgery for example. Okay. And does this affect both hands, typically? It, it does. Uh, about half the time when I see a patient the first time with Dupuytren's contracture, they have some evidence of it on both hands. Wow. And are you able to deliver a definitive diagnosis at that point? Almost no. always. So Dupuytren's is what we refer to as a clinical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So a uh, experienced uh, provider, uh, physician, uh, what have you, who uh, is familiar with Dupuytren's uh, disease with a history and a physical examination, the vast, vast majority of the time can uh, deliver a definitive diagnosis one uh, at one specific office. Okay. Now, how often do the cords that develop actually wrap themselves around an artery or, or some nerves? That's a big question. Um, a uh, frequently, I think, is the is the answer. A little bit, it depends what you mean by wrap themselves around an artery or a nerve. So the nerves and the arteries of the fingers are very, very close together, you know, literally about a millimeter apart. So when it wraps around one, it almost always wraps around an artery and a nerve. A very high percentage of patients who have Dupuytren's not so much in the palm of the hand, but extending up into the finger itself, have the abnormal Dupuytren's tissue around the artery and the nerve. A smaller percentage of them, it, uh, we, we refer to it as spiraling. The abnormal tissue actually goes in a spiral-type pattern around the artery and the nerve and pulls the artery and the nerve into a place anatomically where we usually expect it to be, um, that is a much smaller percentage. But when people do have Dupuytren's disease in the finger itself, a very high percentage of them, it is wrapped around the nerve. That sounds painful. It's actually not. Um, And most people with Dupuytren's, once they get past the phase where they have a nodule, really don't have any pain. it's it's limiting and functionally problematic, but nerve pain uh, or changes in sensation in the fingers, numbness, tingling, almost always is from another condition when someone with just a tracture comes in and reports those symptoms. Okay, and when we talk about the fingers, it, it doesn't affect them all at once. Typically, it's the, the pinky and the ring finger, right? That's what you see? That's first? exactly correct. It, it can affect all five fingers, mm-hmm. but it is most often the ring finger and the pinky. 
Okay. All right. So I think that kind of gets us through onset symptoms and how you diagnose. So now, you know, we could look at the range of um, progression possibilities and some cases are described as mild and some are severe. So what's the difference between those two? So mild and severe is somewhat of an arbitrary distinction. Okay. Um, but the the biggest differentiation uh, between mild and severe probably dependent on two things. Number one, uh, there are some people who come in and they have one joint, one finger only involved. And most of us would say from one perspective, that's fairly mild. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are people who come in, and as I mentioned earlier, about 50% of people, the first time they come to see me in the office, have both hands involved. But there are some people who come in and they have involvement of six or seven fingers. From one perspective, that obviously, um, you know, that patient is going to regard it as a much more severe situation than the person who has only one finger involved. Another way that people will talk about mild or severe is simply about the amount of motion that that finger has lost. So we typically think about the fingers being able to go perfectly straight as not losing any motion. Perfectly straight, uh, to uh, help people understand that, that's in exactly the position where if you put your hand flat on a table, the fingers all point perfectly straight and the person isn't struggling to get any part of their hand or their finger touching that perfectly flat surface. And if you imagine that as an angle of zero, uh, that straight line, it is how much the finger or the joint cannot get to that perfectly straight position. Some people refer to mild as within, say, 40 degrees or less lost from being perfectly straight, whereas severe would be more than 40 degrees, 60 degrees, 7 degrees, or even sometimes 90 degrees, so at a, at a right angle to that perfectly straight position. Got it. Okay. Now, because we're fully exploring this topic, it is... Uh, known that it can affect the toes and the penis, and I wondered if these are equally as treatable. Yes and no. Um, uh, So just to elaborate on that, so it can affect really the bottoms of the feet more than the toes. So it tends to be under the uh, arch of the foot, if that makes sense. That is typically where we see it in the foot, and that is typically much more of a... Uh, like a nodule effect, a mass effect there, it is uh, much less frequent um, to actually cause what we think of as a contracture where the toes might be curled up. That that um, we almost never see from, from Dupuytren's disease. Um, it does affect the penis uh, in some men, and... Uh, what that causes is a curvature of the penis. Uh, so the penis is bent in uh, one direction. And it's treatable? It is treatable. In the toes or in the foot, rather, uh, typically the invasive treatment has been surgery. Uh, many times, like other problems in the foot, 
people can do things like modify their shoe wear and orthotics and things like that, and they can diminish their symptoms without having to undergo surgery. So I think the percentage of people with uh, this manifestation of that disease process um, who undergo surgery or invasive treatment in the foot is a much lower percentage than it is in the hand. Um, uh, likewise, uh, when it affects the penis, um, it can be milder or more severe with somewhat kind of similar or analogous criteria to the hand, although I have to uh, say uh, I don't actively treat uh, people with manifestations in the foot or in the penis just because that's not, not the domain of my practice. Uh, but I know a little bit about it. Um, in the penis, uh, while there have been uh, some surgical options, my colleagues in neurology who treat that uh, disease and, and that uh, area of the anatomy tell me that, not surprisingly, very few people are interested in having surgery in that part of their anatomy unless they absolutely have to. Um, one of the newer treatments for this disease process has been a medication that is delivered by injection and the curvature of the penis can be addressed by a series of injections. The same medication that is used to as one of the treatment options when people have a contraction of the hand um, uh, can be utilized to treat the contraction of the penis. Okay, I'm glad. We covered that. We are going to get into treatment options in a minute. But before we do that, uh, I did want to explore the causes. You mentioned a genetic role. And what's interesting is that it's sometimes, the, the nickname for this disease is sometimes called Viking disease. D can you explain why that is? Yeah, so um, the description of it as Viking disease is, is um, it comes because. Uh, this disease has been identified essentially in all the populations across the globe, but at, at various levels. The uh, uh, population of Northern Europe is the group that has the highest prevalence, uh, the highest percentage of the population that has the disease. And as I mentioned earlier, Iceland uh, is the area that I'm aware of a study that suggests the highest uh, prevalence rate of this disease. But uh, many of the countries that I've identified that have the higher rates are those Scandinavian countries that the Vikings came from. And there has been uh, a suggestion, not a lot of really uh, powerful science, but there has been a suggestion that this genetic disease may have started with the Vikings, and the Vikings took it with them as they went through Northern Europe and the British Isles, uh, which is in the 20th and 21st century, uh, people who are of Scandinavian, Northern Europe, British Isles descent are the group um, that has the highest incidence and prevalence rates. Okay, that's interesting. Now, as far as risk factors go, um, there's tobacco, alcohol. How does that play into it? So we don't really know that any of those uh, issues are really causative factors. Mm -hmm. What it does seem uh, to do uh, is uh, there is some data that shows that 
uh, alcohol use, diabetes, some medications that we don't use terribly much anymore, but some time ago uh, we used to treat severe epilepsy, um, that those factors make it somewhat more likely if, if they're present in an individual or an individual engages in those behaviors that uh, they will develop uh, Dupuytren's contracture. Uh, so we don't think any of them are what most of us would think of as cognitive, uh, but they may be in somebody who has some of the genetics may make you uh, more likely to develop the disease. The, the genetics is a little bit complicated. Most people are going to be familiar with uh, genetics and inheritance on some level. You know, if your uh, uh, parents have blue eyes, you're more likely to have blue eyes and, and, and you know, uh, red hair, etc. Um, the genetics of, the, of Dupuytren's is much more complicated than that. Uh, the current studies, when people have looked at it, have identified a number of genetic areas uh, that are potentially contributory, but it's a, a really large number, and it seems like this is probably going to be related to the presence of several genes, not just one or two. Uh, so the, the inheritance process there is really fairly complicated. Okay, so if we were to set that aside as the nature side of the equation, when it comes to nurture or your exposures in real life, um, there's no evidence that a hand injury or any occupations like those involving something that vibrates or throwing a ball can create the condition, correct? Um, I can't quite say there's no evidence. There's no compelling evidence. There are some studies that have tried to suggest that there's a connection there, but um, they're not very compelling and they're not very widely accepted. So most of us who do this don't believe that uh, uh, things like throwing a ball or uh, sports injuries or those types of things really uh, cause the condition. Okay. Well, I think we can move on to treatment options, and it seems that steroid injections are one um, way to reduce some of the inflammation that's created. Is that right? Correct. Um, I think we mentioned before the first phase of this is the nodule, uh, and the nodule in the palm can be uncomfortable. And so when it's uncomfortable uh, for an extended period of time, some people and some patients uh, some practitioners and some patients both will say, okay, there's a benefit from doing uh, usually a series of three or four steroid injections directly into the nodule to make that nodule less painful, less inflamed, and also softer. Now, what about collagen injections? Uh, so it's not actually collagen injections. Uh, it's collagenase injections. Okay. So collagen no, no, just, just to explain, that's an important point that I have to bring it up with my patients all the time. So the palmar fascia, that tissue that's involved and that changes causing this disease process, one of the changes is there is what we call deposition. There is much more collagen and different types of collagen in that area 
in that polymer fascia than there should be normally. Um, what the treatment that is utilized there is collagenase. Collagenase is a a collagenase is a protein that is designed to break down collagen. Collagen is itself a protein, and um, there are biologic proteins that will uh, digest or dissolve collagen. Uh, in the in people, we have a very small amount normally of those types of proteins. Certain types of bacteria have much more and much more effective collagenases. And the treatment uh, that has been FDA approved since 2010 in the US uh, with collagenase that is delivered by an injection takes advantage of a mixture of two of those bacterial collagenase proteins to dissolve the collagen. Interesting. Now, we're, we're, this is not a commercial or anything like that, so we can leave uh, drug names off. But but one of those injections can cost three thousand three hundred dollars. Is that correct, or roughly? With with also uh, knowing that you need about eight of these injections. Um. Uh. No. So the eight injections, I think, is really more directed when men are having the treatment for the curvature of their penis. Okay. Um, in the hand, the vast majority of patients will have one injection for their right hand, say. some A small number will require a second injection um, or an injection for their left hand, but it's typically one injection. And the, the cost is, um, as you say, over $3,000. It's actually closer to $4,000. Uh, at the moment. Okay. And uh, with surgery, is that a, a general anesthesia or, um, you know, do you stay overnight? Can you leave the same day? How, how intensive is it? Um, most people um, don't do general anesthesia. Most people in my practice and most of my colleagues' practice uh, do what they call regional anesthesia. Uh, and a regional anesthetic in contrast to general, general is when the anesthesiologist puts some type of breathing tube into the uh, patient's mouth and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and colloquially they, they go to sleep. Um, a regional anesthetic is the same thing that most of us have had done for dental work where the dentist injects a local anesthetic uh, at their jaw and it makes kind of the whole side of their jaw go numb. Um, uh, this type of regional anesthesia is when they'll do an injection somewhere in the area of the shoulder or kind of the side of the neck on that side um, and put the anesthetic medicine, the Novocaine types of medicine, right around the nerves that go down the arm and the hand and the whole arm goes numb. Um, And so that way people can avoid the general anesthesia but the whole arm goes numb and that's the way most people have most of this surgery done uh, at, the, at the current time. There are some folks who will do it um, just with local anesthesia in the hand only. And yes, most of these are done as an outpatient, so um, uh, almost no one has to stay overnight after this type of surgery. 
Okay. And then there's post-operative physical and occupational therapy for a little while? Yeah. Um, most of my patients end up doing some type of therapy, either physical or occupational therapy with a physical or occupational therapist who is uh, uh, typically quite experienced in the hand as a subspecialty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll do this for six or eight weeks on average after surgery. Okay, so moving to uh, the prognosis afterward, what can a patient expect after this type of treatment? Are they done? Will they ever be back in your office? Unfortunately, um, given that this is a genetic disease, um, uh, there is a pretty high probability that no matter what the treatments are, either uh, surgery or injection. And, and I should also mention that there is a, another type of surgery that, that uh, people do, just to be complete, um, and, and I do um, on occasion. So the traditional surgery is on the palm side, in the palm, and up into the finger, and that surgery involves separating the skin and the tendons and the nerves and the blood vessels that we talked about from this abnormal fashion, this abnormal tissue, and physically removing all the abnormal appearing fascia. A lesser, much less invasive type of surgery is to is goes by the name of what people call needle fasciotomy or needle aponeurotomy, and that is when the surgeon takes a needle, much like a needle that one would give an injection with, and uses it as a tiny scalpel to cut that abnormal tissue in multiple places that gradually over the course of maybe 20 minutes allows the finger to straighten out all the way. Hmm. Um, um, so, so there's really sort of three categories of treatment. There's that collagenase treatment, that needle fasciotomy, and then what most of us will refer to as open surgery. There are some variations there, but those are the three main types of treatment. Um, and the, the difference is in terms of what the patient experiences afterwards is the the needle aponeurotomy surgery, which is done with the patient wide awake by most people. Fairly quickly, within a matter of a few days, people are using their hands pretty normally. The injection, likewise, within about a week, people on average are using their hands pretty normally. Um, after the uh, more extensive or traditional open surgery, um, people have some use of their hands, but really that most of them are still limited uh, for six or eight weeks, and, and it's much longer in terms of uh, recovery after surgery. But um, but your question about will they have to come back, unfortunately, given that this is a genetic process, we don't at the moment have anything that really approaches a cure for Dupuis disease. So with all of these treatments, there is unfortunately a fair chance over two, five, ten years that the disease will come back, either in that hand or the other hand, uh, a finger that was treated or one of the other fingers. So uh, there are a number of different ways this can go, but unfortunately those numbers remain you know, in terms of the recurrence rate, if you want to think of it that way, they may remain pretty high. Okay, but if there is no treatment, what can a patient expect? So 
typically this process will progress over time. So uh, there are some patients who, when we measure that contraction, when we measure how far uh, away from fully straight they can get their fingers with with um, you know look at look at the angle of the of the joints because that's typically how we will measure this. Uh, if there's no treatment, on average. Uh, people will lose more of that ability to straighten their fingers all the way out. There are some people who over time won't lose it rapidly, uh, but in general we think over large periods of time, years or more, that most people will tend to lose more motion. Wow. Now, can this illness be aggravated by other conditions like arthritis? To some degree. Uh, that's not usually a very common situation, uh, but there are times uh, that it becomes harder to treat. Say, for example, somebody's pinky uh, because it has a contracture uh, and they also have developed arthritis in one of the joints of that finger. So uh, that can happen. It's actually fairly uncommon. And actually, one sort of interesting aside uh, is that certain types of arthritis uh, like rheumatoid arthritis, which is which is one of the less common arthritis problems, um, it actually seems that people who develop rheumatoid arthritis are less likely to develop Dupuytren's contracture. So if you look at people with rheumatoid arthritis in one of the countries, and, and this uh, uh, study has been done really in the United Kingdom, if you look at the chance um, that someone with rheumatoid arthritis in the United Kingdom has Dupuytren's contracture, their chance is less than the general population in the in the United Kingdom. And that probably has to do with the genetics of the two diseases. But mm -hmm. uh, so on one hand, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, if you want to think of it, is protective against Dupuytren's mm -hmm. contracture. Okay. Now, for anyone, any listeners who are newly diagnosed with Dupuytren's, what counsel would you offer them? The first thing is... Uh, it, it probably makes sense uh, to see somebody who's confident in making the diagnosis. So making sure that you're seeing a hand surgeon at some point is probably uh, the most sensible thing uh, to do, um, um, yeah, just to confirm the diagnosis. Uh, the second thing that, uh, that I think is important for patients is for them to get a sense of how much of a problem is this for me? Meaning that in contrast to some of the other topics that I know you've talked about in your podcast where people are dealing with fairly aggressive cancers uh, and the like, this is not a malignant condition and no one has to have treatment. We treat people because uh, they have uh, functional problems, they have things they can't do, um, uh, that may be work, that may be recreational things, that may be social things, that, because they're, the actual presence of the contracture is causing a problem in that patient's life. Okay. Uh, so they need to think about what problems is this causing me, and then, um, uh, then that is part of the conversation to have with the uh, usually a hand surgeon to say, okay, what kind of problems is this causing me? What are the chances that it's going to get worse for me? And 
it's taking all those factors into account in terms of deciding, okay, am I going to get treated? Am I going to keep an eye on it? Um, what are the chances um, that it comes back if I get it treated? And, and these are the important topics that decide what you do with a patient or what I do with a patient. Excellent. Okay, well, Dr. Blazer, is there anything else you'd like to add maybe related to your practice at Brigham and Women's Hospital? I guess the one thing I would say about uh, our practice here, uh, Brigham and Women's is located in Boston, and I think because of the uh, genetics of where a lot of our uh, population had come from uh, prior to this country, we, we have a practice that includes a fair percentage of folks with uh, Dupuytren's contracture. Um, but uh, that's not unique. There are folks uh, in other practices and other locations who see a lot of this. Would an orthopedist be someone who could treat it as well? Correct. So um, uh, really most people treated uh, for this problem, I think, as hand surgeons. And in the United States, uh, uh, probably uh, three-quarters of the people who do significant amounts of hand surgery are orthopedic surgery trained. Uh, most of the other quarter are plastic surgery trained. And a small percentage of the folks who do hand surgery are general surgery trained. Okay. Got it. Well, it sounds like someone with your expertise and background in that particular body part is the way to go. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing all your knowledge with listeners and helping us better understand Dupuytren's contracture. You're welcome. Contributors to the drama of diagnosis include Emika Robbins, research assistant, Amari Jones, sound engineer, Beth Cabernet, production assistant, and Roy Minoff, original music composer and performer.